Good morning. I must admit uh, that there are times uh, when I've been preaching where I go, hey, can I just start over? So I appreciate the fact that if a song's not going quite right, that we can just start over. Um, my name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in the book of John, so you can turn there with me if you do not have a Bible uh, of your own. Uh, there should be one that is up under you. It should be on page 833 uh, to 834, somewhere in that, that page number. So John chapter 2 will be in. While you turn there, uh, on this day, October 31st, uh, year 1517, some 504 years ago, a German monk and priest posted a radical yet controversial document called the 95 Theses on the doors of Wittenberg Church. The monk, whose name is Martin Luther, wrote his 95 Theses as a call to bring about reform in the Roman Catholic Church because of her corruption. The main corruption of the Catholic Church, there was a few, but one of the main one was the selling of indulgences to the people as a means of releasing them from having to exact penitence for their misdeeds. So indulgences were claimed by the church to limit the amount of time that they would spend in what's called purgatory, a place where they could spend, that they would wait and uh, for enough time where they would be able to be saved and be in heaven, and, and that people could buy these other people, their, their lost loved ones, those who have died before them, they could buy their way into heaven. And not only Martin Luther, but uh, many others along in that day came along and said, hey, this is not right. There's some things that we need to do. We've got to get back to the Scriptures. And so Luther published these 95 Theses, and posted them on the doors of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, knowing that he was about to cause an uproar. Not only was he about to cause an uproar, but he was going to, in the face of adversity, probably be killed for what he was doing in this call, calling for a reformation, a reform of the church, the Catholic Church. And so he was excommunicated in 1521, some four years after the 95 Theses, declared a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church. There was a death warrant issued for his, uh, not only for his arrest, but to be killed, and he was taken before uh, in trial in the Diet of Worms, and he was amazingly, by God's amazing providence, let off the hook. From that, what we know as the Protestant Reformation began. And out of that came what we call five solas. Five solas. So we have sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. So the word sola means one or alone. So scripture alone is our guiding document, the document or the words that we will carry forth as a church, the Bible as we know it, so scripture alone. Sola, gratia, gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Uh, sola Christus, by Christ alone or through Christ alone. 
and sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. Those five solas would drive the Protestant Reformation. Now, why is that important for us here this morning? It's important because during that time, the colonizations of the Americas was happening. And because of the influence of Martin Luther and John Calvin and Swingley and John Knox and some of the other Protestant reformers, they were able to change a culture in Europe that affected the culture in the Americas. And so the, as the colonizations began to develop and as, uh, as what was being uh, formed through the Declaration of Independence and some of our freedoms that we, were, that we were able to establish, guess what one of those freedoms was? The freedom that we would have to celebrate and to practice the religion of our choice. So we gather in churches all over the U.S., because of what happened in Europe in 15, 17, and subsequent years afterwards. And so I don't want us to take that for granted, that we are gathered here this morning with the Scriptures, the, the opportunity to open the Bible and to read it without harm that someone would come in and uh, affect us or try to take our Bibles away from us. There are cultures where that, is, uh, where that would be happening. Uh, all over the world, but for us here, because of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, we are able to open the Scriptures, and we are able to read them together. We're able to pray and to gather for worship and sing, and I don't want us to take that for granted, that we should celebrate that what happened some 504 years ago, uh, as we celebrate, usually this day is Halloween, that we would celebrate the Protestant Reformation for the fact that we can open the Scriptures we can sing them, we can preach them, we can read from them without fear and harm of someone coming and taking them from us. And so I just want us to make sure that we uh, just wanted to bring that to light today as we celebrate 504 years because October 31st only falls on a Sunday about once every six years. And so let's, uh, let's celebrate uh, that we can do this. So as we continue our series in and through the book of John, uh, my encouragement to you is the encouragement that I gave to you in the beginning of our series as I gave our kind of introduction and overview, is that you would, uh, if you have not done so, that you would take the time to read this book in its entirety, that you would read through this book, prepare your hearts for it as we walk through it, but at the very least that you would prep yourself during the week to, uh, that you would read the passage that we're going to be preaching about. So today we are in... John chapter 2, uh, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. But if you wanted to prepare your hearts for actually next Sunday, we'll just be finishing out chapter 2. And so you can read ahead uh, and read ahead and, and be with us. And so if you want to know, like, hey, as I'm reading this, how should I be thinking about uh, what the Apostle John is trying to say, not only to his original audience that would have read it and heard it, but also what is he trying to say to us today? And we believe... Uh, the same thing that he, that he was trying to convey uh, to the original audience is the same thing that he is conveying to us, which is this. So the main idea of the overview of John is this. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you may have life. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you may have life. So let's think about that in light of our passage here today, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, that the servants who had drawn it, uh, who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. We pray. Jesus, this is your word. Uh, May we hear it. May we receive what it is that you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that uh, your words that come from my mouth would not be my own but that would seek to honor and glorify you in every way, shape, and form. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So the main idea of our text, the main idea of the book of John that we will see, that we just read, uh, the main idea of our text today is very similar uh, to, to, that, to the main idea of the whole book. And I think you'll see this that as John lays this out for us, as John lays out the book for us, he'll continue over and over again to point that Jesus is the Christ. So if we think about the main idea of this text, I see it as Jesus displays his power and glory so that you may believe and have life. That Jesus displays his power and glory so that you may believe and have life. I think he does that in three ways this morning. First of all, Jesus displays his grace. Jesus displays his grace. The second one is this, that Jesus displays his power. The third one is this, that in all of these things, Jesus displays his glory. His grace, his power, and his glory. Jesus displays his grace. The grace of Jesus should not surprise us. John has already revealed to us in chapter 1 that from His grace, or from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So God, grace is God's favor towards the unworthy, that is how we would define it. That is a favor towards the unworthy, those who are undeserving, which means it is unmerited, and we did nothing, nothing in our power, nothing in our works, Nothing in our own abilities to deserve God's grace given to us, especially in Jesus Christ. So Jesus' grace is the essence of the gospel in that it was provided for us freely through the work of Christ in His death, in His burial and resurrection. So to see one of the attributes of Christ come through here in the wedding of Cana is His grace should not be surprising to us. 
So as we go and we read here in verse 1, on the third day, this is the third day past when, um, when he had called one of the, Nathaniel, one of his disciples, to come. And, and the, the, following, the disciples were following. They left and went to Cana. They left Galilee. They went to Cana in Galilee to a different location. And the mother of Jesus was there. We don't know if Jesus' mother was part of the wedding party. We don't know if she was a, a servant. And it really doesn't matter, but we, she, we know that she has some sort of influence in this wedding. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And this is important for us because what John's been laying out in the first chapter is that Jesus is fully human. He is fully man. That he came and he dwelt among us. He, he took on flesh and he feels the things that we feel. He, feel he, he gets tired. He gets hungry. He came eating and drinking. This is who Jesus was. So it's not surprising that in his human form, Jesus was invited to a wedding along with his disciples. Of course he did. He, he would be living life just as we live life in, in his day-to-day, that he would go and he would be able to be invited to this wedding with his disciples. But then something happens. There's, a, there's an issue. And his mom came to the, the wine has run out. The mother of Jesus said, we have no wine. Now, this was a problem. Because in those days, like in, like in this day, we, we celebrate weddings pretty bigly, right? Like, it, this is a big deal. We spend, uh, we spend a lot of money. We put a lot of time and effort and energy towards it. And it's just a big day, right? Well, for them, it was a big week. It, the, it was a week-long festivity in, w- in which all the invited guests would spend a week together celebrating the marriage of, of a husband and a wife. And they would eat together, and they would drink together, and they would have fun together, and they would just enjoy each other's company. And so for somewhere along the way, to run out of either food or drink would be an issue. And so his mother comes to Jesus says, hey, we we have no wine. And Jesus' response is like, we we see this and we go, woman, right? We, We probably wouldn't address our moms that way, right? And they, but notice that what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, mom, what does that have to do with me? He says, woman. He calls her, he calls her woman. The relationship of mother-son, I believe, in some of these moments has changed. It has changed from a, 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 a follower of Christ to a savior. And so she's now coming to him, and that we learn this is his first sign, knowing that the promise of the shepherds that were given back in Luke 2. The shepherds came and they, they told Mary all the things that Jesus was going to do, who he was and what he was about and what he was coming to do in bringing salvation to many. And, in, and it says in, that, in, in Luke that Mary treasured these things in her heart. And so you knew Mary was waiting for the day when Jesus would be able to, to use some of his power, some of his divine ability to be able to to, to meet a need that she has. She comes to Jesus. They have no wine. He says, what does this have to do with me? How is this my issue? I didn't plan the wedding. I'm just an invited guest here. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Well, what's that got to do with anything? What, what does it mean that my hour has not yet come? How, well, am I supposed to jump into this, even though my hour has not yet come? 
Well, what we know about this when it says the hour has not yet come is that Jesus is pointing to the hour that would be his crucifixion. That would be the hour that he would go to the cross or towards the cross. And so the first half of the book of John is laying out Jesus' ministry. Is laying out Jesus, all the works that he had done, all, all of the things that, uh, the miracles that he had worked, some of the signs, and so not all of them, but uh, some of them, right? Um, but then the last half of the book, from John 13 all the way to the end of John 21, is basically the last week, the Passion Week of Christ. And in, we learn something in John 23 and 27 that helps us to identify what it means by this hour. The hour has not yet come here. But when we get to John 23, as we get into the Passion Week, my hour has come. He says, my hour is here. It is time for me to go to the cross. And so when we read this and we go, my hour has not yet come, it helps us to understand when is his hour to come. Well, that is to be the crucifixion, when he would go to the cross and he would absorb the wrath that we deserve. And so his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. And so it's almost like she ignores Jesus. It's Jesus' question of what does this have to do with me? Knowing that he would probably fulfill her request. And so what does this have to do with me? And his mother said, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holder tw holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so Jesus begins to enact his grace. Jesus begins to show his grace and his mercy to his, not only to his mother, but to those who are at the wedding party. Knowing that this would be a travesty for the bridegroom and the bride and, and, and his family and their families, like this would be an embarrassment to them. And so Jesus just steps into it, even though he knows his hour has not yet come. Jesus steps into the midst of this and displays his grace for those who are at the wedding party. And he says, hey, fill the jars with water. And he's about to begin to do something. And we see that, that grace upon grace that, that John talked about is, is given to us over and over and over again through the life of Jesus, that he displays his grace for those who are undeserving. It was not his fault. It's not any of the wedding party's fault. It is the people that were planning the wedding. It's their fault that they ended up where they ended up. But yet, there was grace upon grace from Jesus that he would go and begin to do something that nobody else could do. And then we see his display of his power. Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn, it, uh, drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus shows his power in changing water to wine, but this isn't surprises. We know that Jesus is all-powerful. We, we know this through the scriptures that tell us he performed miracle after miracle and healing after healing, and he fed 
5,000 with next to nothing for food and calmed storms and raised Lazarus and Jairus from the dead. Like, Jesus is powerful. He had all power in that He could lay down His own life and bring it back up again, which we'll see next week. So anything that Jesus wills, He can accomplish. Even in creation, even in, in bringing about creation, Jesus spoke forth and creation happened. So the fact that He can change water to wine should not surprise us about who Jesus is. This is His character. He is all-powerful. So turning water to wine seems like nothing when you think about Jesus, who is God, can bring about creation. He can recreate things. He can transform things. He has the power to create, to recreate from water to wine. He has the power to transform its, uh, its quality to not only be just watered down wine, but to be the best wine that the, bride, that, that, that the master of the feast has ever tasted. You have kept the good wine. It is a good wine. He is, it's not surprising that Jesus would be able to create and transform water into good wine because He has that power. My question to you is, do you know this power that Jesus has to transform water to wine is the same power He has to transform us from death to life. That through Christ, through your believing in who Christ is and what He has accomplished for us and for you and me on the cross, by dying a death that we deserve, that He has transformed us by putting your faith in Christ, in His grace alone. That you would be saved. That you would, that you would uh, believe this and it would be a gift of God for you. That is power. To transform you into something that you weren't. To look back at your life and say, this is who I was before Christ, but this is what happened when Christ saved me and here's what my life has been like since. That is transforming power that you should be able to look at and tap into at all Times knowing that you are not, you are not the same person today that you were before Christ came into your life. So Jesus not only displays his power here, but he has displayed it over and over and over again in your life. And then we get to the culmination of why he even did this. We see this here that. This is the first of His signs. This is the beginning of His earthly ministry that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And He manifested His glory. He displays His glory. And by doing so, the disciples believed. John 1.14 tells us that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So we see Jesus as displaying His glory. Glory is seeing something as worthy and having a weightiness to it. And so as, when we see the glory of Christ, we see it as having some sort of worth and weight for our lives. 
It is a splendor or majesty that is invaluable and is deserving of glory. When God displayed His glory to Moses, He knew that Moses being a sinful man could not see the full glory of God and He hides him in the cleft of a rock so that he will not be destroyed when he sees the glory of God, not be overwhelmed by it. And even then, he only shows his glory, uh, his, his, he only shows his glory to Moses by showing him the backside of his robe. And so that Jesus would do the sign, that Jesus would turn water to wine, that Jesus would obey and listen to his mother, would reveal his glory so that you may believe that you may believe. You see, Jesus' glory is the culmination of His grace, the culmination of His power, His mercy, His culmination as provider for the provision of His people that we see here, that He provided for His people. That is the purpose of this text. That's the purpose of what Jesus did what he did. That he would change water to wine so that those who saw what he did, who saw this miracle happen, that his glory would be manifested to them. It would be revealed to them. To the disciples, to the servants, not everyone that was at the party, but to those who knew, knew that a miracle had been done. And there he displayed his glory. And in this, the disciples believed. This will not be the first time that John uses this sentence. Matter of fact, we're going to see it again next week. That Jesus does something. They recall something that happens. A words that were spoken in the prophecies. And they would believe. And that Jesus manifests His power. Jesus manifests His grace so that you would see His glory and that you would believe. And over and over and over again, He shows us in the Scriptures where where He does these things so that you would believe. That you would trust the Gospel. That you would trust the truths of the Scripture. That you would trust that Jesus is who He says He is and that you would believe. Now what does it mean that his disciples believed in him and they believed in him? I believe it means that their foundation in their faith was continually affirmed over and over and over again by Jesus' display of his glory and his power and his manifestation of all these things together, of grace and mercy and faith and provision and all these things that he's done in your life. And it caused them to believe. So my question to you this morning is, do you believe this? And if you say, yes, I believe this, I'm a Christian, of course I believe this, that you would be like the disciples, that you would allow it to sink deeply and dwell deeply inside of you, that you would meditate on this idea of God's glory in your life and Jesus, what Jesus has done for you in transforming you from death to life. That you would dwell on these things, that you would would, um, meditate on these things day and night, that it would dwell deeply in you, that you would continue to believe. Because what we know is that there's going to be doubt that creeps in. 
There's no doubt they doubted. When they, when they called disciples, when they left John the Baptist and went to follow Jesus, there was no doubt that there were some questions in their minds. Like, do I believe this? Is he really the Savior? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Lamb of God? Is he really the Son of God, the Son of Man? All the titles that have already been given in John 1. Is he the one of whom Moses has spoken of? Is this him? I'm not sure. It seems like it, but is this him? And when we remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel and who Jesus is and the glory that is found in him, we deepen our faith to trust in him more and the world less. So we, when we see that disciples believed in the manifestation of his glory, we rejoice because we have believed. We've trusted in this by There's a couple of things here that I want to bring you to to kind of double down on this idea of, of, of what it means to be in Christ. One of those is that of purification. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. They had to go in and wash their hands and prepare themselves before they would meet, or before they would eat or drink. They would wash their hands. And they would become pure. But this was an outward purification. But the symbolism here of Jesus changing water to wine would have been evident to those who had read this. What does wine signify for us today as we begin to take the Lord's Supper? That it is His blood shed for us. That Hebrews 1.3 says He is the radiance of the glory of God. That is Jesus. He is the exact imprint of His nature. So if you want to know what God looks like, all you have to do is look at Christ and His life. If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. So He is the exact imprint. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. There we see that. Jesus is upholding the universe by the word, by the, by, by the word of His power, Hebrews tells us. But here's the thing. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That the, that the real purification that comes, comes from Christ Jesus, who took on the weight of our sin. He lived a life, came into this world as fully human, lived a life that we could never live, a perfect life, holy, righteous life. How many of you have led that life so far? Good. He died a death that we deserved, a, a death that we could not die for ourselves. And then by His power, was raised from the dead to show that He could overcome death and sin and the grave. That is the purification for sins. That is why we celebrate through the, through, through the blood of Christ with wine or grape juice. Because Christ has paid the ultimate price for us in the purification of our sin. And what does that purification do? Second Peter tells us that that whoever 
lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That when you believe on the Lord Jesus, and you, by his grace, put your faith and trust in him, that you are cleansed from your former sins. That he has washed you white as snow. That you are no longer filthy rags before him. But no, you are presented in splendor as a bride before a groom. Which takes me to the other that we see here, which is the bridegroom. In a couple of weeks, we are going to see in John chapter 3, where John the Baptist introduces the idea of Christ as the bridegroom. And his church as the bride. We see in Ephesians 5 that Christ gave Himself. The bridegroom gave Himself for the bride. That Christ gave Himself for the church. And that there will be a day when He will usher her to Himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That is the way that through Christ, you will be ushered into the kingdom of heaven. No matter what your earthly endeavors portray, no matter how sinful your life has been, no matter where you came from or what you have done, that through Christ, He can purify your sins and that on that day, the bridegroom, Jesus, will present you without spot or blemish or wrinkle. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. So as we begin to um, sing and worship together through song, we will have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. A symbol of Christ's death on the cross. His body broken. And His blood shed on our behalf. So as, we, uh, as the musicians come, we're going to sing two songs. And if you are a Christian here, if you're a baptized Christian here, and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are free to come and grab the elements over these next two songs. However, I want to remind you that there are a couple of caveats. 1 Corinthians says that you would examine yourself to see if there is any sin in your life. Martin Luther in his 95 Theses, guess what number one on his 95 Theses was? That our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, in saying, Repent ye, intended that the whole life of His believers on earth should be a constant penance. That means that we should be constant repenters. That we should always be examining our hearts to see where sin lies. So this morning, I want you to reflect on Christ. I want you to reflect on the goodness of the gospel in your life, but I also want you to reflect on sin that may be just rooted there, maybe sitting there that you have not repented of, and that before you take these elements in a, in a way that is unworthy, that you would repent.
and that if you cannot repent, if you know there's sin there that you have not repented of, or if there's a brother or sister that you've sinned against and there you cannot go and ask for their forgiveness in that sin, that you would refrain from this, that you would not partake. This is for the Christian believer who is actively repenting of their sin and has been baptized, and, um, baptized through immersion. Um, and also, this is for, not just for the members here, but for all those who, the saints, who have placed their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand. We're going to get ready to sing. And as you reflect in your heart of these next two songs, just come and get the elements at will. Uh, we now have a gluten-free option up here. So if you are a uh, gluten uh, intolerant, uh, you may grab uh, one of those uh, their own little plate back here, and then grab your juice with that. And so I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing and worship together. Go ahead and stand while I pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace upon grace. Thank you for your mercy displayed to us on a cross that was an affront to many. But to Lord, to us, it has become a symbol. A symbol of a broken body and blood shed for us, for all those who would, who would, by faith, believe and receive the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who have never done this, that they would take this time to reflect on their lives. Maybe they say their sin, my sin is too great. How can God possibly forgive me? Lord, would you instill in their hearts that they can be forgiven of anything, that you, are not, um, that you are not so less powerful that you can't forgive their sin, but you are all powerful. That you turned water to wine, you spoke creation into existence, that you can forgive the most deathly of sins. Your grace is sufficient. Your grace is enough. Help us to believe it and receive it. Amen.